This is Macro Horizons, episode 78, Sunshine and Trend Lines, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring me our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of July 20th. And in pondering the trajectory of the U.S. rates market, remember, sideways is still a direction. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. The week that just passed had a fair amount of information in terms of fundamental economic data. We did see CPI with the core print for June outpacing expectations, although still in a relatively subdued capacity. Also better than expected Empire State Manufacturing and of course, retail sales. What's most notable is that despite this strong run of economic data, we didn't see much movement in the treasury market. If anything, 10 and 30 year yields managed to grind somewhat lower and the curve a bit flatter. This is not necessarily a new trend for the treasury market. In fact, this bias has been in place for the last couple of weeks. And frankly, it's one that we expect will be difficult to fade going forward. And we did see another strong run in equities. Part of that was a function of incremental gains toward developing a vaccine for COVID-19. Although we're still a significant distance away from the end of the pandemic, nonetheless, investors took solace in some of the developments. It was also the beginning of earnings season, which revealed for many of the domestic banks a solid performance on the fixed income trading side. But that was offset by lending activity and loan loss reserves. Not particularly surprising given the countercyclical nature of certain products in the fixed income world, such as treasuries, but nonetheless, it does provide context as investors level set expectations for the second quarter and subsequently the second half of 2020. We would like to assume that we're on the verge of a very exciting time in the treasury market where new macro narratives are crafted and the net result is a significant repricing in treasuries. However, that is not the case. We're transitioning into the latter part of summer and as that occurs, historically the last couple of weeks of July and the month of August have tended to be characterized by low volatility in the treasury market limited flows and limited conviction to any move. Now that doesn't exclude the possibility for choppy price action, especially given the relative lofty valuations in the equity market. Nonetheless, we are skeptical that anything will emerge over the course of the next several weeks that will truly redefine investors' expectations for the pace of the recovery, the contours of the pandemic, or the appropriateness of equity valuations at this current stage. 
This doesn't mean the treasury market will be completely without any trading opportunities. We continue to focus on the range, and in 10-year yields, we're watching that 54 basis point low yield mark as an important selling opportunity in the event that the continued grind lower in U.S. rates breaches that important technical resistance level. So guys, a big part of the price action this past week and some of the resilience in stocks has been optimism around the development of a vaccine. So it's at least a little bit perplexing that rates have not repriced alongside hopes that maybe a vaccine is closer than some originally thought. Well, Ben, I think part of what is going on is a simple fact that while investors in the treasury market and fixed income more broadly might have faith in the upside potential from a vaccine at some point, the timeline for it being rolled out and actually impacting the domestic economy is just too long to immediately reprice. So let's imagine a situation where there is a viable vaccine by the end of the year. It still isn't going to change the broader global economic outlook for the foreseeable future. Sure, it will eventually lead to the return of global commerce, but it is going to be a different world. And more importantly to the treasury market, particularly the front end of the curve, the Fed isn't going to respond to a vaccine. If anything, they're going to take incremental encouragement from it, and it might keep them from going down the path of further monetary policy action. Yeah, Ian, all the conversation about the vaccine in some ways reminds me of last year, where the joke was that stocks would rise on trade deal optimism. It seems now that stocks are rising on vaccine optimism. And there's something intuitive about that. Investors are always trying to trade the next development. However, one nuance I'd offer and one really important way that the current environment is different from last year in the trade deal is that when we were talking about prospects for a phase one deal between the U.S. and China, that was kind of the only game in town. That was the only deal we're talking about. So if that fell apart, there would be a big risk off growth negative impulse into rates, pushing them lower. We saw something like that last August. On the other hand, now there are multiple vaccines out there. So even if some of the front runners now end up not being effective, well, risk assets can easily just change focus to some of the others that are still progressing. Where does all this leave us? Well, my takeaway from that is that the probability of a big flight to quality or risk off impulse from a failed vaccine effort isn't all that big just because, you know, in some ways there's always another vaccine. Yeah, John, and risk on in the event of a vaccine, that makes a lot of sense. However, I don't know that that necessarily implies a blow off in long end yields. Particularly after listening to some of the Fed speak this week, it's very clear that a variety of committee members still feel that more will be required from the FOMC, just given how terrible the economic backdrop is. After all, the labor market is in anything but good shape. Inflation remains very muted, as evidenced by CPI. So while the optimism associated with a vaccine breakthrough would definitely buoy stocks, I think the realities of the Fed and monetary policy would offset that to a degree in the rates market. A steeper curve definitely, but not necessarily dramatically so. Ben, you mentioned that the labor market is not necessarily in great shape. This past week, we saw ballpark stability in some of the initial jobless claims and continuous claims figures. As we move further into July, we're going to enter the period where some of these lockdowns were reimposed. It's possible that we could actually see an uptick in claims. 
Ian, how do you think the rates market would respond to not necessarily a stabilization, but actually slight dip or deterioration in the labor market? I would say that to some extent, a fair amount of that is already priced in. And that's why the market has been unwilling to trade some of the incrementally positive information. We made the observation early in the pandemic that there would be a period of increased uncertainty where the market simply wasn't comfortable trading the data, not because it wasn't necessarily reliable, but because there was simply no context for the magnitude of the declines. Fast forward to a period where we're reinstating lockdowns, we do have some context for the magnitude of the negative economic data. However, it's still the situation that investors are looking past, to some extent, the near-term downdraft on the economic data and trying to get a better sense for what the world looks like once we do eventually reopen and reemerge. The risk then becomes that the new normal is actually not reopening in a traditional sense, and we find ourselves in a situation where we attempt to reopen, need to scale it back, attempt to reopen, need to scale it back on a semi-continual basis, and I would expect that that would eventually lead to a hit in risk assets. That's not priced into the stock market, although one could make a strong argument it is reflected in U.S. rates with 10-year yields at effectively 60 basis points. Another thing that dynamic does is introduce this idea of data becoming stale even before it's released. Something I think we've been seeing playing out as these prints that cover the late June, early July period start to hit the tape. Because while the economy did make it into that initial phase of the reopening, the relockdowns have the exact same effect of making the data stale as they initially did back in March and April when the pandemic first took off. So again, this suggests that the intra-range moves, nothing related to the larger backdrop, but the knee-jerk reaction to some of the fundamentals may be a bit more muted, especially in the context of a summer trading environment. Yeah, Ben, I think the past five days are a great textbook example of the dynamic you laid out. We had stronger than expected CPI, stronger than expected retail sales, and as we talked about earlier, some progress on the vaccine front. And yet 10-year yields are actually lower because a lot of that information is stale and came before the latest lockdowns. And to some extent, I'd argue it's because we're transitioning into the latter part of July. August is on the horizon. And while Traditionally, this tends to be a period where there's relatively limited conviction, low trading volumes. The pandemic has complicated that somewhat. I would argue that investors are going into the latter part of the summer expecting to see a relatively benign rate environment, a limited volatility, and a continued upward grind for risk assets. The question becomes, in my mind at least, what derails that? What would be the development that we could see that would really recast the market's expectations? I frankly struggle to see it. Ben, to your earlier point, this notion that the data is stale means that we really won't have much in terms of fundamentals to guide us, at least for a couple more months, until we get past this stage of paused reopenings and return back to the path of pursuing the new normal. Ian, one risk that I think could recast that environment, to be fair, this isn't my base case, is if these unemployment benefits aren't extended at the end of the month or early August before Congress goes on recess. We still have 30 million plus Americans who are relying on that unemployment with the $600 a week augmentation. If that were to suddenly drop, if the expectation of fiscal support filling that gap goes away, I could see a pretty sharp shift in expectations for consumption and sentiment 
which even with the Fed as a backstop, has to feed through into the equity market in some form. And on the consumption front, we've heard the argument made that given the massive amounts of money the Fed has put into the system, it's no surprise that equity valuations are where they are. After all, all that cash has to go somewhere. But given stocks' impressive performance from the lows, is there an argument to be made that some of those gains may flow through to household balance sheets and then introduce actually some upside to consumption, which then would flow through to inflation? Well, the wealth effect is to some extent a cornerstone of what the Fed is hoping will happen as they endeavor to keep equity volatility low, financial conditions easy, but that's not their primary focus. Their primary focus is addressing the issues in the labor market. However, as a side point, we could see some increased consumption related to the uptick in equity prices. We haven't really seen it yet, and I'm not that surprised because the subset of the U.S. consumer base that has been hit the hardest was the low-wage earners, think service sector, restaurants, etc. So historically, that group has been less vested in the equity market than others, and as a result, a big push towards consumption comparable to what we saw as a result of the increase in transfer payments, i.e. enhanced unemployment benefits, is unlikely to be realized again in 2020. I would also say on the wealth effect that that can be a slow process to feed through. You know, households and investors don't check their 401k balance on a Friday and then go out and buy a car just because of a shift in the underlying stock market. However, that dynamic can play out over months and quarters. The other thing here, which might be a headwind, is there is still significant consternation around these equity valuations. And the wealth effect only works if people believe that that level of wealth is sustainable. They're not going to go out and spend a bunch of money if they're worried that the stock market's going to turn over again. The fact that the VIX is a little bit elevated kind of is directionally consistent with that. But I would say that those are kind of more background factors than anything else. And the more time we spend with the S&P above 3,000, the stronger that wealth effect is going to be. Yeah, I completely agree with both of you. And to me, what this emphasizes is from the Fed's perspective and from an economic perspective, it really comes down to healing the labor market. We've made the analogy in the past of the bridge, so to speak, to get through the pandemic. And as we reach the end of this bridge, the $600 a week employment benefits come to mind. It's only going to grow more crucial that the jobs lost originally make their way back. And exactly as you say, John, that's a months and quarters issue, not a weekly one. It also brings up an interesting debate of how much is priced into the equity market in terms of another fiscal stimulus program. We've made the argument before that a reasonable amount of the upside in equities is a function of what the Fed has been doing and what lawmakers have been able to deliver on the fiscal side. However, earlier this week, we saw several headlines that suggested stimulus 2.0 had stalled out. And we didn't see a 10% retracement in equities. Now, part of that is surely a function of investors' confidence in a single headline or two. After all, it is a long and sometimes convoluted process to get bills through Congress. Nonetheless, I do think it's notable that risk asset valuations don't seem quite as vulnerable to some of the negative developments on the fiscal side than many in the market had anticipated. And the fact that our conversation so far has centered around equity valuations really speaks to the current dynamic in the rates market, especially this upcoming week. It's pretty reasonable to expect that the moves in stocks are probably what's going to be the most guiding force for rates. Now, we do have a $17 billion 20-year reopening and a new issued 10-year TIPS auction, 
which on the margin could offer some incremental upward pressure on longer dated rates. But for 20s in particular, the fact that we've seen good demand at both auctions so far and the fact that the trend in the new bond has generally been bullish suggests that a large sell-off won't be needed to see good sponsorship. And also on the curve versus 10s and 30s, 20s have performed quite well, which should really conclude the conversation about any worries that there will be no buyers for the new bond. So essentially what you're saying is if Treasury builds the bonds, they will come. I mean, someone's buying what Mnuchin's selling. Hey, at least I really enjoyed the Lego Batman movie. Everything is awesome. In the week ahead, the Treasury market is faced with a dearth of economic data. There are a few releases of relevance, but nothing that will truly impact the outright level of rates. For that, we will continue to watch a performance in domestic equities with the S&P 500 close to the post-COVID crash highs and effectively erasing all of the 2020 year-to-date losses, getting a better sense for the direction of risk assets from here will be essential in skewing the odds for a breakout in the treasury market. As it currently stands, we're focused on resistance in 10-year yields at 54 basis points. A break of that would put 50 basis points or below easily on the radar. However, the importance and the resilience of the range continues, and we continue to expect that at least on the first, if not the second attempt, any effort to push rates below 54 or 50 basis points will be a selling opportunity as investors look to take profits, assuming that the range will continue to hold as we transition into the end of the summer. As a theme, limited conviction, low volatility, and choppy price action during the latter half of July and throughout the month of August seems to be the path of least resistance. While we've historically relied a fair amount on the seasonal patterns in the U.S. rates market, the pandemic has shifted the timing and the magnitude of some of those potential influences. Nonetheless, summer is summer, and we expect that out-of-office responses and staycation photos will soon become the norm. As we look out a bit further, we know that the Fed has continued to focus on the damage done to the U.S. employment market, and that will be key in guiding market expectations for the outright level of rates, although apparently less so in equity valuations. The July non-farm payrolls report is not released until the 7th of August, so there's still a couple weeks for expectations to be further refined in terms of the impact of the second round of lockdowns and the scaling back of the reopening efforts. This particular report will be important in setting the tone for how investors are evaluating the impact of the second round of lockdowns. Now, we've made the point in the past that investors will be less responsive to the incoming economic data during this period simply because, as at the beginning of the pandemic, people simply lack context for the magnitude of the declines. What we're about to see via the July employment report will be an update on the labor market that does have a bit more context, and so that will make it of particular note. Although, frankly, at the end of the day, the range will continue to hold in the treasury market, we eventually do see a breakout towards the upside and higher rates, but the timing of that is debated in months or quarters, not days or weeks. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And as the temperature climbs, please remember, hydrate, 
hydrate, hydrate. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.